And if they're at all happy where they are and what they've become, from selling out to doubling down, let's talk punk rock business and what happens when the two get all mixed up. Here is your host, Bill Florio. Hey, this is Bill Florio. Yo, this is Charlie Boswell. <laughs> Charlie, I've never seen you say Yeah, it's Charlie Boswell. Hey, it, it just, just wanted to know, it's like 10.30 at night, so we just had a really marathon interview with... Boo Boo Danger from Mass Arrest, and somehow by accident he works for IBM. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a real roundabout way, but uh, yeah, interesting story of how he got there. Uh, his work with uh, graphic design and how he got involved in the tech world. We also talked a lot about his move from Boston to the West Coast, which was really interesting. We also touched a lot on his work with uh, DEI initiatives for his uh, for his company. He has a, a, a consistent history of like kind of being an overachiever, but not in a traditional way. So it's interesting. It came out a little bit long. I think the the most interesting thing about it is, is he seems like somewhat you know anti-establishment, but you know he's working at like one of the biggest companies, longest working companies ever, and you know he's making it work on his own terms. So I think that's that's really the interesting part here, taking advantage of opportunities that are coming. Yeah, and we always talked about that as how do people work within a traditional structure, you know, a mainstream structure, but still keep their ideals. And I think he's a great example of someone who's been able to do that. And Charlie didn't really talk on this one, but it was it was a little bit hard to get a word in. <laughs> Charlie? This podcast is not about politics, and I don't really want to get into politics, but I'm involved with education specifically in the fight for academic merit. Yesterday on the cover of the paper, there was a big story about a grade fraud scandal which was exposed at a school. Now, this wouldn't have happened without my involvement. I know a lot of other brilliant people and people had to get in things done that were involved. Grade fraud is robbing of an education thousands, if not millions of children. I believe that every child needs to be challenged in their ability. This isn't easy, but it is the moral thing to do. I think we need to judge everybody on the individual merit. I believe racism is morally wrong, and I think the way to stop racial discrimination is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. All right, roll the tape. All right, why don't you introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do for a living? Sure. Uh, so my name is Kendall House, aka Boo Boo Danger, and I am a graphic designer and illustrator who, and I'm also a facilitator and organizer for things around equity, diversity, inclusion, advocacy, representation, um, and all those other fun buzzwords um, right now. So I work for a software company, and about half my time is split doing graphic design 
work for our marketing organization. And then the other half of my time is spent trying to put together programs uh, and work with other people to really help our company's mission to help with our less than impressive uh, diversity numbers, our even less than impressive uh, inclusion numbers, and really trying to, to find a way to help our culture, our company culture, and then the tech industry more broadly, kind of trying to help foster a climate and culture that is a little less shitty um, and is a little less majority centric, so a little less purely white, a little less purely male, a little less purely straight, a little less purely cis, um, and all that fun stuff. So that's what I so do. So do you? So how, how many I, people like, work? How many people work at the company? So the company's called Red Hat. I think that we're about seventeen thousand people globally, but we were acquired just over two years ago by IBM. So while we are still our own brand and, and I haven't really seen any major IBM influence, um, we are technically now like a, a 100 and something thousand person company. So it's huge. <laughs> so and, and you're doing two jobs. <laughs> yeah. Do you have to wear a hat to work now that IBM took you over? Is that an IBM thing? Yeah, they used to, everybody had to wear a hat. That's not true. My dad worked for oh, IBM. I, he didn't have to wear a hat. When? In the 60s? In the 80s, 70s, well, the 80s. 80s, yeah. I'm talking the 60s. <laughs> well, we're not in the 60s. Well, well, mafia guys used to have mustaches. <laughs> so, Boo, let me ask you, as far as getting into handling the equity inclusion aspects of, of Red Hat, is that something that you volunteered for? Is that something that they asked you to do? And when did that start? Did that start when everyone started, when it became a buzz thing? Or did you start that before that? Well, I kind of think of the world right now. And by the world, I mean the United States. I, I'm sorry for being so U.S. centric. I should be. Uh, I should be a little more careful with my words. But um, I kind of look at the pre-George Floyd America and post-George Floyd America um, as far as the the you know corporate commitments to equity, diversity, inclusion, and things like that. Um, that's as far as my company goes, and I think I think a lot of people. It's coming in waves, and so for me, I thanks to punk and my upbringing, um, I've been actively involved in stuff like this outside of work. Or, I mean, I was even, when I was a barista, I was like, I was still that same person. I still wanted people to not do anything to make anybody else's day on the job worse than it already was. To, you know, to treat each other with decency and a little bit of compassion and empathy. Um, to, like, not harass um, coworkers and things like that. And so I was oftentimes put in management positions because I really cared a lot about, about people, whether they be the customers coming in or the staff. Um, and so even, I mean, I would say it's increased over time after, um, after Freddie Gray, I got more involved at work. After Philando Castillo, I started my first black employee resource group. By the time Ferguson was, was, totally engulfed in flames the first time in 2014 i was starting the diversity council at a small 120 person tech startup i was working at in san francisco because we were like 120 people and only like maybe 10 were non-white people and that was like so that was like 110 white people in san francisco and about 10 non-white people um, only one or at that time Two of us were black. One woman was an Indian British woman, and then the rest were um, some really brilliant engineers from China. And everyone else was was white, almost all male, 
almost all straight, 100% cis. And then the age range, everyone, just about everyone was between the ages of uh, 22 and 30, not married, not caretakers for anyone, no children, nothing whatsoever to keep them from being in the office all the time, from getting that like extra, extra time with the CEO at the happy hour at the bar across the street. Um, just really kind of a self-perpetuating thing when, you know, we got a sales team, we hired a sales VP, and then he brought over 10 high five and white guys from another company that like we're just moving them and mass from company to company. So whenever they show up, they bring their own baked in culture, which then, you know, starts to seep into the rest of the company. So to kind of answer your question, it's something I've been doing volunteering for a long time. And then after George Floyd, I'd already positioned myself in my company or in my quarter of my company as being someone who gives a shit about this stuff. Um, and it has like like black power tattoos and it's constantly wearing like Malcolm X and and Angela Davis gear to the office, stuff like that. So after George Floyd was murked on TV, um, all of a sudden people got much more interested. And I was already in the leadership team for our Black Employee Resource, which is called Build Blacks United in Leadership and Diversity. And we went from a membership of about 250 to suddenly in, in like two days, a membership of like 600. And that was all white people joining who hadn't either, according to them, hadn't taken the problem seriously, hadn't understand the problem, understood the problem, or just um, just had no idea that um, race relationships, race relations in the United States are the way that they are. And immediately came and asked me for answers. And so I was, the first thing I did was help set up a, an allyship resource center to recommend books, um, documentaries, blog posts, magazines, things like that. And then started uh, an allyship development program um, where I helped develop criteria for non-Black people who want to be allies, and then eventually, hopefully, for everybody who wants to be an effective allyship with everybody else. And you were using your design skills all along? Yeah, well, yeah, it was kind of frustrating for a while because I kind of, I had this duplicitous existence where I had my, my like, nine to five, like, the stuff that was in my job title, which is a marketing, a senior marketing designer, a multimedia designer, depending on who you're asking. So I was doing all the design work over, you know, kind of with the left hand and then with the right hand outside of my immediate team and organization. I'm doing all this advocacy uh, and allyship work, and they really weren't coming together until it so happened that we were putting on a major event. I mean, events design is, uh, uh, it's the primary primary scope of my design work. So when you had Robert Collins on a couple of weeks ago talking about dressing Moscone and he was talking about clients, I'm one of Robert's clients. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, he even like completely saved my ass on one of my most high stakes installs when I had spent way too much money on a typo that I hadn't triple checked. And he was able to come up with a new vinyl cling for me, like at the 11th hour. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah, for real, he happened to be on site and, you know, caught me like chain smoking angrily in the parking lot, you know, (laughs) offered me options that the average client wouldn't have had. But so we were setting up an event and, um, you know, major events, when, when we have a major event that's advertised in Wall Street Journal, and has over you know ten thousand paid attendees, but then has eighty thousand people who have had other engagement points. It's a really, really marquee kind of PR opportunity, and I firmly believe that the people that you put forth as experts really telegraphs to society who you think is worth a shit. 
And it's not uncommon for a lot of these companies to give tons of money to their celebrity speakers for these keynotes that typically have very little to do with the actual subject matter of the event. It's just like, hey, we have this celebrity. We're going to pay him 10 grand to talk to you for 40 minutes. Um, And a lot of times at these companies, those celebrities are middle-aged white men already wealthy, already exalted, and um, already getting paid a lot for engagements all over the place. And they're in no way actually providing a message that's catered to the host company or to the audience. It's just, hey, we (laughs) could afford to get so-and-so up on stage. Okay. (laughs) Every time I go to any of these things, it's not going well. I'm like, how does he just, just make a living off of that? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't know, like Adobe, when they did their massive Adobe Max last year, they had Conan O'Brien. So sometimes it's just purely like for entertainment factors, or like you'll have Neil deGrasse Tyson talking at, at a software company that has nothing to do with what he's doing. He's just, it's just them showing their alignments. And so, you know, in a moment like that, there was an opportunity to say, hey, I'm doing, a, I and myself are doing a lot of design and promotion work for this. I mean, we work on our annual summit. Um, it's usually, it's about 11 months a year for those of us who are on the core team. And so 11 months is really devoted to just cranking out tons and tons and tons of collateral. And so I finally had the opportunity to say, hey, as this other thing that I do with the company, I think that we can show up better, we can represent better. And um, and that kind of kicked off where I am now, where I'm kind of serving the two roles. And I am right now in the process, I've just been writing um a new actual role and job title for myself, which if all goes well, by the time this goes live, if it does go live, um, I will be the um, brand experience, uh, diversity and inclusion principal designer will be hopefully my That's title. Great. Now, let me ask, because I, I, you know, I've seen a lot of companies in my industry kind of... What industry are you in? PR marketing. Oh, great. And we, you know, also very white, more female, but very white, very monoculture. I think any industry, if you look at it with that much of a magnifying glass, you're going to be like, there's there's some serious problems with how they how they hire and the culture that they cultivate and all of that. But what I've already started to notice is that being at the forefront of people's minds from a leadership level receding a little bit because the pressure's not on or they don't feel like it's that urgent anymore because it's not in the news or they're not under a microscope for that. So do you feel like there's a certain element of like, you got to strike while the iron's hot and, and make the, make real substantive changes now before people kind of start letting other things be the, the shiny object, not to trivialize obviously what we're talking about, but I think from a, from a, from a standpoint of, of how I watch my industry work, you know, they're already on to talking more about COVID stuff or, you know, things like that. So how much of that is like, we need to act fast and do as much as we can now. So that's, that's everything. I would say that a lot of this work really is surge work, meaning, I, you know, I don't know anything about football. But there's probably some metaphor in there <laughs> with gaining yardage incrementally because this is what always happens. There's, there's a news cycle. And now, thanks to social media, there will be a a big kind of public outcry. It's super short-lived. And then once it's over, it's like it never happened. And it's really critical. I mean, for me, I've been following this shit since Rodney King. You know what I mean? Like, watching... Watching the the attempted murder of Rodney King and then the resulting LA uprising when I was in seventh grade fucking changed me, like changed me forever. That was to see the way that that man was brutalized like that, but then to see 
I lived in a white neighborhood at that time in Boston. And to hear the way everyone was talking about, everyone in my world was talking about it. And the, the way that like, the way that the cops got off and then a lot of like, yeah, budding, like, oh, they shouldn't have been beating him. Like, yeah, but you know, cops have a really dangerous job or whatever bullshit that they wanted to give. And so from that time on, it really has been... I feel like moments of seizing a little more ground by being relentless. So it's like, you know, when, when, you know, 2014, we start marching again, you know, living at Oakland at the time, I live right on the marching route. There's helicopters over my, my apartment every night. And there's like, what seems like a big movement for change. And then two years later, Trump gets elected. So, and, and very much as I believe a, backlash to both the election of of Barack Obama and the uprisings of Ferguson and kind of the, the the publicizing of the Black Lives or the movement for Black Lives. So there's always like this push and pull. And so whenever there's there's a moment where there's like the, these kind of watershed moments of breakthrough where all of a sudden I've got 400 white people coming to me and saying, hey, Black guy, like what what can we be doing better? That's when I can act and that's when I can gain a little ground. That's when I can help educate some people a little bit. That's when I can find more comrades. That's when I can learn more because that's when there are other people who all of a sudden, you know, this is like when Nick, Nicole Hannah-Jones is going to strike when the iron's hot. Uh, this is when Dr. Cornell West is going to strike when the iron's hot. I mean, this is when we're going to get a lot of um, a lot of study coming out, a lot of discussion coming out. And then we're already, I mean, I would say that much of the, Movement for Black Lives in 2020 was truncated um, in the the very public space by the increase in um, anti-Asian hate crimes, which was appalling, right? And also something that's rarely ever talked about. And I think there were a lot of people in the um, Asian and Pacific Islander communities in the United States and other parts of the world, they were able to seize the moment like, hey, if we're talking about lives mattering, and we're talking about the dangerous, on-the-ground, everyday real effects of uh, white supremacist systems. Like, they were able to seize that opportunity and, and make ground that wasn't necessarily available to them before the move for Black Lives mixes with movies like Crazy Rich Asians and celebrities like Ali Wong. Like, these things come together in these perfect storms, but it's only momentary because... When we say these things are systemic, we mean it. It's baked into every single thing. And, you know, the, the, one of the popular quotes these days is the thing about when we say systemic white supremacy is that with the, the system is built in such a way that if everybody stopped actively participating in it right now, it would still continue on its own. So that's the kind of tide that we're working against. So we don't like this isn't for the fan of heart. Because you know, even though you're having these really great engagements today about all the stuff that's going on, and it feels hopeful as statues are being torn down and, and people are putting black squares on Instagram or whatever else, uh, those of us who've been in it for a minute know that in three months, if you're still talking about it, you're going to be uppity. You're going to be in the outs. You're going to be the, the you know, Dougie Downer that like, oh, come on, man, we're just trying to have a good time at this punk show. You know, like, why is Martine on stage talking about, like, human rights and stuff like that? Mm. Like In a Speedo. So, in a Speedo. <laughs> that's, that's how you got to <laughs> do it, though. I mean, that's <laughs> the best way to do it. Catching leather cap. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> hold, hold on. Let's go back to Boston, because... Oh, uh, chicken and egg here. Chicken and egg here, right? You just said a whole big piece. Like, you're obviously... Yeah. Like, activism is in your blood, right? What came first, the punk part or the... 
Boo Boo as the activist part? And and did one influence the other directly, or they they just both come naturally? Oh, okay. I don't know. And Boston. Um, I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I would say that they were pretty hands hand in hand for me growing up. So I'm born in Tennessee. And my family, my white mom and my white grandmother moved me and my my black brother the hell out of Tennessee as quickly as possible once I was born. I'm the younger because all of a sudden for the first time in life, they are witnessing firsthand violent racism um, because they have two black children. And so they're like, we need to get the fuck out of Tennessee. This place is crazy and racist. We got to go to some place that's like really progressive, open-minded, and has great race relations. Let's try Boston. <laughs> the internet, did, the internet did not exist at that time. No, they couldn't do the right amount of research, right? It certainly didn't. It certainly didn't. So, so my black ass gets shipped up there. Uh, I want to say '83, and uh, immediately, immediately, my brother and I got dropped into an Irish Catholic school, St. Bridget's. My brother and I were the first two kids of color to ever attend that school. Um, I I made it a full three months in kindergarten before I was expelled. I think that that's pretty impressive. <laughs> and really, I mean, Boston in the '80s, it was just a fucked up place. I mean, it was. Wait, 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 wait. Were, were you eating paste? Was, was I expelled for eating paste? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, wait a minute, I was eating paste, but we all were. What do you say? But no, that's not why. Charlie, didn't you say like Brenda from SFA was kicked out for eating paste <laughs> or something? I beat up my class with an ET lunchbox. <laughs> <laughs> with the thermos inside for extra leverage? Oh, or? yeah. Yeah, and it, was those, and it was those OG metal ones that they used to, they used to make. And the thermos so. was fuller. <laughs> According to my mom, I have no recollection of the actual incident, but when my mom got called by the principal and she took the bus, the city bus to come to school and she comes in and she said walking down the hallway, it was like a Kubrick film because it looked like there was gore dripping down the hallways leading from my classroom to the principal's <laughs> office, but it's because... It was SpaghettiOs. Uh, I never said it was like tufts of red hair and like. <laughs> I, I did. I did something great in kindergarten, like, and I got away with it, like scot free. Like, so I, I, uh, I live right across the street from my school, and there was like a separate entrance for kindergarten. And my mom used to walk me up to the driveway and then let me walk the rest of it. And while on the, you know, hundred yards I was walking, there was a dog, and he started following me. So I, I kept like, you know, calling him, calling him, and then walked him right into the classroom and he started licking all the kids. <laughs> and was a, it was pandemonium. Like this dog was in this, and this, the 80 year old kindergarten teacher's like, Oh dear, who let that dog in? Like, I don't know. <laughs> that sounds like uh it sounds like, I don't know. Someone from like a kid's show where like the, the old sound. lady's actually like a 12 year old, like, like a Miss, Mrs. Doubtfire wig. been like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, she had she had like some some parent bought her a little china bell and she would ring it like oh class be quiet but it's like then she started banging the bell and then it was it busted into a million pieces and then she started banging other things and broke those. I, I agree that that would end with Bill you looking at the camera and then doing like the circle fade where like it closes into your face. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, grown ups. <laughs> so. But for that one day, you were like the coolest fucking kid in school, right? <laughs> no, just in my head. I don't think anyone okay. even saw me let him in. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's how I roll. I don't. I don't. I don't need to. I don't need to take credit. So, wait, so wait, at what point was your mom like? Maybe Boston wasn't such a good idea. Uh, I don't know. She still lives in New England. So. Oh, she's in <laughs> denial. <laughs> 
my whole family is still in 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 Boston and uh, Seacoast, New Hampshire, uh, and Philly. So I'm out here. I'm in the Bay Area. I've been out here for almost 15 years. Um, so I'm not going back. But you got into um, you got into punk in Boston. I mean, I, I saw you. Uh, I did. You posted something not too long ago about a uh, uh, Bruisers and like Warzone show that you were at in the '90s, and you know, with a picture of you. And I mean, like, so that's so that's definitely you know how did how did all of that happen? How did you get into the? Punk were, scene? were you like a, sure. a sneaker skinhead? No, I, I was a straight up boot boy skinhead. Um, okay, just checking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we 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 called those sneaker boys, and that was the first <laughs> first time I was at a show with two pits. Where it was like everyone with boots was up in front of the stage. And then I got kind of pushed back from it. It's like 92 or 93. Probably bands like Sam Black Church and Tree and Cast Iron Hike. And then in the back of the room was where all the kids with the backpacks and the sneakers were doing <laughs> the martial arts moves. <laughs> um, and that was mind-blowing for me. I mean, but that was... The, all right, so at that time in Boston, the, the best part about it was there were so... There's like 115 colleges and universities in like the greater Boston area, what I would consider like the metro area of Boston. And because of that, there were just amazing college radio stations. And I thought that's how it was for everybody. So I remember being like in fifth grade or sixth grade on like a Tuesday afternoon, listening to the Harvard radio station, WHRP in the summertime. Summertime is when they would let locals take over the station because the students would be, would go home. Um, and so like my brother, he was 14 when he started his own radio show up at WDJM. Um, and so we just had like, so I, uh, that Friday or that, that like Tuesday afternoon, I heard fucking Gigi and the Jabbers playing on Harvard radio. Like, <laughs> and so it was unbelievable. And then there were a ton of venues back then too. And so all the college radio stations would give out tickets. And so my brother and I, we, we were already, we started we were really into classic rock. We were really into hip hop when it was first coming out, 83, 84, 85. So it was a lot of like Run DMC, the Fat Boys, LL Cool J, Slick Rick. Um, mixed with um, tons of Zeppelin, Jethro Tull, um, Sabbath. And that led us from there by 85, 86. We're really into thrash. We're listening to uh, Metallica, Anthrax, Exodus, Rigor Mortis, o Overkill, all those bands. And so we're trying for, for us at that time, because all my classmates were just listening to the New Kids on the Block and Debbie Gibson. And so everything was about just trying to hey, find don't what. Those. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Debbie Gibson stage stove on me once. I, I, hey, I got Joey McIntyre's autograph on my, uh, on my tank top uh, to make a play. Wait, you got so. Debbie Gibson's autograph? No, Joey McIntyre from the New Kids on the Block. Oh, oh okay. Not Debbie Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so from there, we started listening to underground radio. It was like the, we had just heard the term alternative for music. This is like 1988. And this is when we start hearing like uh, early, like Sonic Youth, um, this is pre-Dinosaur Jr. We're just like hearing like weird oddball shit that just sounds really cool. And, and no one at school is listening to it. We're totally outcast. We're totally ostracized. By seventh grade, I'm getting my fucking ass handed to me with racial violence. And... We were just listening to local radio, and one night there was on uh, the radio, they were giving away tickets to go see some bands I had never heard of before at a place I'd never heard of before, and I was 11. It was Slapshot, Kingpin, and Eye for an Eye <laughs> playing <laughs> the Worcester Artist Group or the Old Wag in Boston, and we were just, we got free tickets, and so it was just like going to an event, like growing up. My mom told me that concerts were for rich people with credit cards, so we didn't see bands. <laughs> but she would take us to see poets all the time. I got to see 
Ginsburg. I got to meet James Baldwin in 1986. I got to see Seamus Heaney. Uh, Just really like amazing poets. And so the idea of like going to see a live musical performance seemed like really extravagant. We didn't know what DIY was. We didn't really know what punk was. I remember we'd go to Newberry Comics all the time and we'd see the Crimson Ghost t-shirts and we we were pretty sure the Misfits were a surf clothing company. Like we just didn't fucking know. (laughs) Well, Choke's kind of a poet if you you went to the Slapshot show. I'm sure uh, (laughs) he holds his own up there. Good luck telling him that. (laughs) But so went to it. You went to the Slapshot show at 11 because you won tickets? Yeah, we won tickets on the radio. My brother won tickets. Our best friends, John and Mike, won like got tickets to their older brother who was a medic, but he carried an assault rifle, the chunk of his car. He was, a, <laughs> he was like, he was in his mid twenties. So he was our chaperone. And, okay. uh, we went. And <laughs> That's it a was, good chaperone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he, he grew up to be a psycho cop. So, I mean, <laughs> so he, so he just kept the gun in his trunk yeah. then. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so I went to the show, I'm like 11 years old. I'm wearing, Full Army Navy surplus, head to toe, way oversized. And my brother shaved my head into my first real mohawk or a frohawk because, you know, I've got curly ass hair. And went to the show, didn't know what any of it was. Everything was super cool. And at one point, I'm standing in the back and this tall black guy, the only the only black guy there I'm not related to, um, he walks up and he's like, hey, what's up, little brother? How you doing? And there were some seats in the back of the old wag. There were bolts to the floor, like old theater seats. And so he sits me down. I don't know him at all. And he, during Kingpin's set, he just like breaks everything down for me. Hardcore, unity, like <laughs> all of this shit gives me this total crash course. And I'm just like, I'm agog. And, and, and really, it's important, I think, to point out that Boston in the 80s was so ethnically segregated. You, you couldn't even be white in Boston, really. You'd be like, yeah, but are you, are you Irish? Are you English? Are you Portuguese? Like, it was really, really important. I know a woman who didn't find out the family secret that she was a quarter Portuguese and not 100% Irish. She wasn't informed until she was 18 and old enough to handle the information responsibly. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so this is wait, where I wait. Go. Wait, who was who was this guy though? Oh, well, so, the show. Right. Do you, do so you know he breaks was? it all down for me, and then when when Kingpin is done, he's like, "Hey, sit right here. You'll be fine. You won't be in the mosh or anything. I gotta do something. I'll it, be right back." It was back. Lloyd from Eye for an Eye, wasn't it? It, it was Lloyd. It was Lloyd. And <laughs> he's a nice guy. <laughs> just changed everything for me. And he worked at Newberry Comics and Newberry Street at the time. So did Mark from Slapshot worked at that same Newberry Comics. Um, and like th- that, that was what clicked for me. All of a sudden, everything was like, oh, fuck, there are people. One, you, if you want to hear music and you don't know anyone playing it, you can create your own band. You can create your own shows. You don't need adults. You don't need authority. There are places where, where white people and black people can commingle safely, um, which was groundbreaking for me. Um, and, and at that time, what I was outside of punk and stuff like that, I was involved with um, the United Way in a group called Project Depth, which was drug education through participatory theater. And so I would go to schools and we would act out skits um, to teach kids about the dangers of drugs and violence. I was uh, a founding member of the uh, Boston Coalition for the Prevention of Violence um, under the governor. Like I was doing work. Or- so wait, why, why did you join that? Was that like your mom's influence? No, I mean, how did all- that come up? I, one, because I wanted shit to do outside of school. 
I, I hated school. School hated me. It didn't work. Uh, I was bullied. And then I went from being bullied to like one summer I came back and I was tough. So it was just like fights and suspensions. I ended up going to 12 schools in 12 years. And so school wasn't doing it for me. And it, school felt really inconsequential. I'm sure anybody who like, when you hit that age where you realize there's a whole world going on and whatever happens in school, does it really matter? Um, especially if you have no aspirations to go to college, then like school just really means nothing. And so I, I wanted, I, I legit wanted to get involved. I had been raised um, Catholic. I believed in charity. I believed very much in like helping out my fellow citizens. And it was also um, re- like the, the AIDS epidemic was just fucking taking out people like crazy. And so by beginning of, of like being a part of organizing and being a part of advocacy and stuff like that was for people living with HIV AIDS, most of whom were queer. This was um, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And so the, the groups that I was a part of, the Drug Education Secretary Theater, the Prevention Fund, all of this was a part of me really, really, really wanting, having been bullied, wanting to advocate for people who didn't have any sort of advantages, for people who were being shunned, and for people who were just completely X out of society, it makes sense that at that same time, I found punk, which was claiming to do the same thing. So for me, it all became tied together. Now, Boston punk was not particularly political, especially not the corner of it I was in. From that point on, I went and saw and, and you, you mentioned the only two nice guys I know in that. And even Lloyd grew up to be not so nice. I have, you know, the story about when I ran into him 10 years later and he went, Oh, I guess I talked to a lot of kids back then, and I'm like, <laughs> "Nigga, you changed my life." I don't think I don't think Lloyd was I don't think Lloyd was drug free. <laughs> no, no. But so I think that that was just a lot of it. It was a lot of this idea of like injustice in the world and wanting to be one, not wanting to be a victim of it myself, but then two, just knowing that like every fucking time, every single time in my life, that somebody has reached out. In any way, whether it's like you're in fucking Buffalo, New York for the first time and it's 1993 and the other kid wearing a pair of chucks was like, hey, have you heard of Minor Threat? Like those moments or Lloyd being like, hey, this is what hardcore is. Those moments were like pinnacle moments for me. And that's like the minimum of advocacy. That's just the minimum of showing up for somebody. And so I just always wanted to make sure that, that somebody's fucking showing up for everybody. You know what I mean? Like, if possible, like I'm, I'm not altruistic as much as I was on the committee for prevention of violence. I was also like the biggest shit starter that I knew, <laughs> like, um, you know, like definitely cutting my teeth on slap shot and bruisers and, you know, the, the kind of pre FSU into the FSU days of, of, you know, blood for blood and all that stuff. Like that's, that was my scene. So I had no problem like being so a college So you weren't kids. doing any food, not bombs then. No, but at that time too, <laughs> it was just, in Boston, it was a really weird thing. Like Boston, Boston hardcore at that time was ultra conservative, was really like um, homophobic. It was just really weird because then there was like the crust scene. There were the phobia kids. There was the food, not bombs. But like the idea, like, yo, ask any massive Slapshot fan back then if homeless people should be given food. And they would tell you no. They'd be like, no, they're lazy. Just let them fucking die. Like whole fans <laughs> have built. Sheer Terror arguably built their whole platform on despising people who don't have jobs. And I'm just like, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, so at that time, the, like Nary the Twain met then, right? Like the kids with the dreads and the dogs 
and and you know squat stew didn't hang out with like the straight edge dudes who worked stocking shelves at the liquor store like back then they just it, it never coincided it seems like it's gotten it seems like the boston scene is fucking amazing now and there are just incredible bands of all sorts kicking it together but back then it didn't fly i bet i remember fucking gibby from the trouble who he and i have been friends forever Without going into too much detail, when he came back to New England, I want to say this is probably 95, we met at a bruiser show in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And at that time, I mean, that like 95, 96, 97 was when Skinhead ruled supreme all over New England. And so those of us who were the boot boys, like there were just a lot of us. And I remember there was reason to believe that Gibby and I would have misaligned politics and we wouldn't get along with each other. And there were, you know, some people guessed that we were going to fight when we first met, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I don't really remember what happened. We didn't fight. But later that night, it's a New Hampshire winter. It's freezing fucking cold. We're both like 16 years old. We got nowhere to go. And he's like, yo, like you can crash in my car with me until the sun comes up and then you can like take a bus back to Boston or whatever. Um, he's like, but you know, like, I feel like I should, I should tell you something personal. And I'm like, I'm not going to suck this guy's dick just so I can sleep in his car. Like <laughs> this isn't, this, this isn't that story. And he's like, I, um, I really love the sisters of mercy. And I was like, these in the Banshees are my favorite band. And we were both undercover goths. And we spent all fucking night listening to Bauhaus, Joy Division, Warsaw. And it was like the big suit. We have our flight jackets, our American flags. Like, shit, I hope Alf from the Bruises doesn't walk by. (laughs) But that's how everything was back then. Hey there. Too punk for your job? Too professional to still be a punk? We want to hear about it. Share it with us at killedbydeskpodcast at gmail.com. Yo, any of you business owners out there, if you got some punk on your staff and you want some publicity... Send us a check. Hey, we cut a whole bunch out of this episode. For five bucks, you can get it at patreonkilledbydust.com. All right, so you gave us you gave us a good good origin story here. Yeah. You said, you know, 12, 12 different schools in 12 years. It wasn't for you. You obviously didn't just start working a white-collar job right away. What's your what's your job path? Like, what, what's the history? Oh, I have an impressive hipster resume. <laughs> <laughs> I've done all the hipster jobs. So we're gonna be, I'm going to be annoyed by every single job you've ever had? <laughs> well, you may not be annoyed by the job, but you've certainly been annoyed by someone who works in every one of these fields. <laughs> <laughs> so I started off, well, uh, I started in kitchens, did that for a while, moved from there to clubs. So I was a bouncer at the Middle East uh, through the end of the 90s and very beginning of the 2000s. And quit being a bouncer, went to be a bike messenger, did that for five years in Boston, uh, from there, went to be a barista, um, and of course, became like a, a coffee and tea educator, uh, a judge for barista <laughs> competitions. <laughs> wait, wait, wait! Did you ever participate in a bike messenger? race oh yeah and after party yeah that was one of the worst experiences of my life i got (laughs) i got invited to this show and it smelled weird and it was a bike messenger race and it was like two hours of award presentations it was the word that was trapped (laughs) so i don't know what kind of keep going soulless person invited you to that that's like if someone invites you to their band practice it's like what the fuck am i doing (laughs) thank you thank you for acknowledging how bad this is Uh, but yeah i was the co-captain of of a messenger race team called the interceptors um and you know we did a bunch of races in new york and boston and and all over the place and then from there um I, uh, what was next? Barista, 
uh, worked in a salon. Um, oh, I, and I was a professional DJ um, for 10 years. So it's like... Um, wait, wait, you were a what? A professional DJ, club DJ. Oh, okay. So, but you never worked in a record store. I did. I worked at Second Coming Records <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> on Mass. Oh wow! In in Cambridge in the so, oh, middle. Okay. Wait, wait, and that was that was linked to the New York one. Yep. Yeah. Same owner. And that was the only record store that sold White Power records. Oh, the one in New York did. <laughs> Ironically, the one in, <laughs> the one in, the one in Cambridge didn't. No, it was secretly. So the, <laughs> the man the manager, Jewish kid from New York, he had a secret. <laughs> like collection uh well not collection he didn't collect them himself but he had like avenues where people would bring like uh like rock against communism and rockorama record boxes and stuff like that but it was like very under the table but but if you openly tried to do that in boston at any period of boston punk you would have your store would have gotten in trboble like no matter how oh, racist no, my friend my boston friend worked be, there and he said Every day, guys in business suits would go come in and buy those records. I believe <laughs> That's it. who bought them. I mean, that was like that. I mean, that was the thing. And probably I the guys who, guy who became a cop. No, no, no. These guys are like Wall Street guys. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, but so much of that stuff, though, is just really awful rock and roll. Like it's just, <laughs> it's just bad rock and roll. How many guys in business suits become cops? Yeah, hey, business suits don't, don't become cops. That's right. <laughs> but it, it's like the guys that like what what like before the Dropkick Murphys. What's the closest thing to like an indie version of Bruce Springsteen? It's Screwdriver. It was the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Oh, okay. Fabulous Thunderbirds. <laughs> okay, them too. <laughs> That's probably why there's so many Nazis in Detroit too, because all that stuff sounds like that. Well, yeah, but Wait, it's the fabulous so... Thunderbirds are from Detroit. No, no, but like all like that <laughs> middle of the road, like you know, bad rock and roll, like boogie rock stuff. Well, also Michigan is the be, militia though. capital of America. Like uh, mi- that's mi- true. But Michigan, they, they, they should be though, because it's Thunderbirds, right? And then that would like make sense if they're from Detroit. <laughs> oh, that's a car anyway, reference. Unless it's, unless it's the drink. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> You have everything on the bingo card except for like a mixologist, but I think the barista kind of it's it's six of one, half dozen of the other. I was definitely a dive bar bartender, <laughs> but not a mixologist. <laughs> not a mixologist. All right. How the hell did you get to work at a tech company then? Okay. So the way that happens is mid nineties, early to mid nineties, start playing in bands, and every scene has the person that draws flyers or whatever. I wasn't good enough at drawing. A uh, woman named um, Deanne used to uh, used to go by the, na- the name Sticky, and she illustrated a lot of the flyers. Brendan Burke uh, did a lot of the punk flyers. I, I was my brother is amazing at drawing. I wasn't that good at drawing, and so I got good at composition. I got good at um, color and form. Like I, I, it would be like, oh shit, we need we need a record cover. We need a t shirt. We need a tour poster. Whatever, and I would go to the library. Um, I got that Kinko's hookup and I just got really, really into graphic design as, as a, as a concept, as principles for, for visual communication and attention grabbing. So I've just, I, I just really, really fell into it in like 98 or 99, a friend of mine asked me to design a CD cover for him and gave me, um, a bootleg copy of Photoshop. And so designing and illustrating was always kind of one of my many hustles and gigs that I would do. And then so through my 20s and 30s, as I'm trying to figure out, you know, other stuff to do. I'm doing freelance graphic design to like help ends meet. But my day jobs were still just very, they, they were just the same things I was doing when I was a teenager. And mostly it was so I could keep touring. Um, as we all know, like service jobs can be 
some of the most convenient for taking time off. And so it it went that way for a long time. Um, I ended up going and finishing school in graphic design eventually to make sure that I had um, all the principles and fundamentals down. And then eventually I just started freelancing full time, um, which is terrifying. If I mean, where I'm from, like if you you have to pay for your heat ahead of time, it's an oil tank. You have to fill it up. And the January heating bill would be, you know, something like six or seven hundred fucking dollars in these like these shells that we lived in because they weren't insulated properly. And if you didn't pay that, like your pipes would explode. You didn't have running water. Like there was there was no like not having a job. And so I just I was always working, always working, always working. And then being freelance, I had one year um, all of my my primary clients all decided not to pay me until Q1 of the following year. So that meant for November, December, I was working 80 hours a week because they wanted to show a lot of production, um, but they, they wanted to not show a lot of output. So they just weren't paying me till January. They never told me. And I panicked. I almost lost my place. Um, it was really scary. So I asked a friend of mine. Got to make sure you, you work on that boilerplate contract if you want to go <laughs> independent contractor, right? Yeah. Like 30 day, not 90 day. Right. Right. There, there's so much. And and if you want to do it, it helps to have an nest egg. You want to make sure that if you're not going to get paid for a month that you can survive that. And I mean, saying this like in the middle of a pandemic now, it seems kind of obvious. But back then, the idea of like me, like a scrappy punk kid having a month's worth of fucking pay in the bank, like that's a, I, my friends still joke about how it's always the dude who paid rent two weeks late and i would still like be a couple coins short like i did, i didn't have my shit together enough so a friend of mine yeah but you, you is, basically went to business school by almost freezing to death yes absolutely yeah and so then <laughs> a friend of mine who's an old philly punk philly and dc punk hacker anarchist hacker um he was working for a software company and i at that time had done a lot of work for tech but i was trying to avoid working in tech uh, at that time, the gender inequity is still awful in tech. But 10 years ago, it was a lot worse than it is now. Um, and I, I just absolutely refused. I didn't, I didn't, I, I never joined like teams that were boys against girls. I never joined the boys team. I never did like gender specific stuff that, that, I don't know. I just, I, I didn't like the, the inequities. And so I didn't want to be, I didn't want to benefit from that system, knowing that it was causing so much harm for other people or just completely disregarding them. My friend was and like, then you well, switched there's... the gas heat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it was all over. I didn't know nuclear, baby. <laughs> I, I have a, a friend of mine's really annoying in law greets everyone by, you get solar yet? How come you're not on solar? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm not sounds, on solar. It sounds like you are just an overachiever in everything you do, and you kind of just ended up doing that. Because, I mean, it sounds like you got into bike messaging and being a bike messenger, and you did all all that stuff. And you, it seems like everything you do, you kind of can't help but take the lead because you are that driven. Is that something that kind of happened with the situation you're in now with your career, where you're just like, listen, like, Absolutely. I'm going to fix this shit or do the best that I can on top of everything else that I've now tasked myself with? Well, yeah, because I... Because I, I am now in a position where, one, I'm massively privileged to be living in the Bay Area and actually be able to work for a tech company, right? Like kids in the Bay Area, their parents used to tell them to grow up to be a doctor or a dentist. Now it's like doctors and dentists are chumps. 
You know, like if, if you're not, if you haven't developed your first fucking app by the time you're 12, it's like, you're, you're not going to make it or whatever. It's disgusting. It's fucking horrible. And I see it. I lived in West Oakland at the time, which is a historically black neighborhood. It's where the Black Panther Party, who I'm definitely a student of the Black Panther Party. And those are the streets that they were formed on. Those were those neighborhoods they were in. That's where I was marching for black lives and then getting on BART and going to downtown San Francisco to work in an all-white office where if anyone was going to talk about the marching, it was going to be talking about how they were annoyed that their commute was slowed down. Mm-hmm. And so they're just that, seemed to really... That, 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 that system is not very good, though. Uh, <laughs> what? BART? The BART? BART. Just, just the, the whole San Francisco mass transit. It's like, all right, I'm just going to walk. And then it's like, oh, I got shin splints now. <laughs> Yo, it sounds like a whole lot of you problems. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know I, I recommend as we get older, you want a softer sole in your shoe. So that if, you, if you're going to walk these San Francisco blocks, you're prepared. I walk a lot. Wait, in so New you put like Dr. Sh- I put like I like Dr. Shoals in your chucks? No, I, I got that from Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't wear chucks anymore um, because they just don't have enough support. But anyway, it's like, but so the hustler in me is like, I, I want to get that bread, right? Like, mm-hmm. I know that there are 22-year-olds in my city that just got out of college and they're making $180,000 a year. And at that time... I was making, I don't know, maybe $30,000 a year as a fucking barista. And I was just like, I no, I want that bread. And I, I want to be able to get mine out of that system. I can't do that with any sort of a clear conscience if I'm not also opening up opportunities for other people like me to also get in there. And by like me, I just mean people who haven't been afforded any access to the opportunities to do it. Right. So I lived mm-hmm, in a mm-hmm. black neighborhood and I was watching everyone get rented out. And there was no like even the like a lot of the boot camps that were being put together for coding, the ones that had like financial aid were very niche, very specific and very white centric. It was a lot of like, let's get white women, let's get white queer folks, let's get white people from upper middle class backgrounds who already arguably could have potentially, I'm not speaking for everyone's uh, individual situation, but came from a place that the place that they were from. And their color were not barriers for them. Now, life gets in the way, a whole bunch of shit can happen. But there was no one that said, you can't have this job because of the color of your skin or anything like that. Or, or you can't have this job because of where you grew up. You can't have this job because of where you went to college. Everything else was just checked. They were just the wrong gender, which is serious. But a lot of times for a lot of people talk in tech, when they talk about diversity, they specifically are just talking about gender. And it's an opportunity for white women to be able to access the same power that the white men in their lives already have. It is not a matter of trying to redistribute power, not a matter of trying to dismantle power. It's just trying to get themselves the seat uh, at, at the table. I'm not talking about the individual women involved. I'm just talking about the, the, the systems and programs that have been put together. And so that, that's when I was like, I got to get this bread. I got to figure out how to do it in a way that I can still sleep at night. Um, and then, yeah, and then to your point, I guess that is what I do. But I learned all of this from punk. All of this from punk, like the let's start a band, let's have a show. Fuck that DIY spot. Nazis go there. Let's start our own DIY spot. Fuck that. Nazis are coming here too. Let's start our own crew to fight the Nazis. Like everything, everything that I'm, 
it made me realize over time, especially once I started being interviewed on design panels at places like Adobe, where I listen to everyone else's experiences, and then they get to me and they go, "Wow, you're you're really a self starter," and I'm like, "No, I'm actually really fucking lazy," and like, I like to like play video games. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> relative, right? <laughs> Everything is relative. It's it's super relative. And so for me, it's like, no, this is just what this is what punk taught me was that I, I should always be trying to strive for better. And, and, and I always want more people at the show. Right now, the show is the company I work at. I want more people to be able to come in my work at my company that, that can bring different experiences, different ideas, different thoughts, and then can bring that money back to different neighborhoods. That's something that's huge. Like We talk about this a lot, a lot of ethnic communities, and that includes ethnic white communities from you know, other countries and whatnot living in America. Oftentimes, we stay embedded in our communities, and whatever we make, we bring back to the community. But the second person who gets a hold of that money takes the money out of the community. So I live, say I live in West Oakland. I don't currently, but say I do live in West Oakland, and I get paid. Where do you live now? I live in a little island called Alameda. It's right off the coast okay. of Oakland. I got a good sandwich there once. Hey, right. hey. hold on, though. Now, but now your band, right, is playing Ring Central Stadium. Like, <laughs> as a child of the 90s, it sounds like you're coming to terms with it. Like, my band can play Ring Central Stadium. Yeah, I mean, it really, <laughs> I think that it is like that. But, you know, it's different. I think, I think part of the fear of, like, um, the, the fear of infiltration in punk was about maintaining a safe space where we could... Where, where we could like keep the world out. I'm going to go ahead and say in a lot of ways, that is a very white thing because it comes from, I'm not saying it comes from, but for some situations, you have a person who feels like they're, they and everyone they know is allowed everywhere. Where can they find solace where the other people in their life aren't going to be. For people of color, that can be a very different situation because there's lots of places we can't go. I couldn't go to South Boston, the entire neighborhood of South Boston my entire life. I didn't go until I was 22. And it was with two locals and one of them gave me a hammer, a claw hammer and says, well, if we get jumped by more than six guys, you're on your own, right? Like, so for, we're, we're, we know ahead of time, if there's a show, there's a good chance we want to know what bands are going to be on because we want to know who they're going to bring. We wanted, like, there's just a lot more considerations. And so while in punk, it was like, let's secure this space that's for us and keep it secret and keep it off the radar so it can't be infiltrated. It's the opposite with what I'm trying to do now with my jobs. I'm trying to infiltrate. I am trying to bust open a door and I'm trying to get people in because for a lot of people, this is a space they can't get into because they didn't have access to privileges that would have given them the opportunity or they just don't have the right face. Or they're in a wheelchair, or they're neurodiverse, and and you know, and they don't communicate in the same way that that the recruiter is familiar with, or whatever. So it's kind of the opposite. Now it would be like if I got a bunch of punks to join the football team in high school, and instead of being like, "Well, fuck football and fuck the football players," it's like, "Well, football's cool. We just need more of us on the football team." So then, not all football players are fucking pieces of shit. I don't know if the theory is going to work, but that's where I am now. That's it. I've never I've never heard this before. This is new stuff for me, which is it seems impossible. Well, you're also so, kind of writing. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> it also seems like you're kind of writing the tell-all book about like how the punks, you know, taking the punk scene stuff that you've learned and and put it towards more of a mainstream audience. You know, I mean, I think well, but see, but I would say punk is very self-congratulatory 
Punk is very proud of itself. <laughs> and that book that you just described has been written about a thousand times. It would be the, how I learned from my, you know, my summer as a plucky punk rocker. And, you know, we started a, a fucking info shop in my house. And like, and then I went on to, and it's like, oh, okay. Like, all right. Like, yeah, thank you. You want to give Forbes, punk credit for that? Thank you, Forbes, for giving me the opportunity to write about, uh, you know, my experience in the punk scene and how right. it's helped me climb the corporate ladder. You know, I, right, I right. But you know, it's it's more and, like. And, and if I wasn't on a punk podcast right now, if I was on a design podcast, I would be giving punk a lot of credit because it's something that they'd be like, "Wow, okay. Well, then maybe if we get into some of these righteous messaging, we'll like change our way." But on a punk podcast, I'm like, "All right, punk." <laughs> but don't, don't don't get too proud of yourself don't here drink because your i learned yeah okay, like i i learned something that's good. From the that's, second that's, that's, actually too. that's actually consistent behavior yeah <laughs> well, well it's funny because i mean i think uh james spooner brought this up when we had him on and he was talking about how he start, started seeing all those elements of like the political aspects of punk start infiltrating the mainstream with like he's like now you know someone's grandmother knows what a cab means you know and knows like knows all this stuff and it does seem like they're is that element of maybe popular culture learning from not just the punk scene. I mean, it's, it's any kind of activism, any kind of underground scene and, and, and any kind of thing that's outside of, you know, what's considered, you know, mainstream society. But at the same time, the question is, you talked about the exclusionary or elitist aspects of that. Is there a way to do this in a way that that is something that people embrace on a permanent level without it being like, oh, that that month we really cared about Darfur or the, the month that we really cared about whatever. I mean, it, so it doesn't become like that moment in time. Mm hmm. Um, no, I, I, I don't think that there is a way to, because things, I would say things don't get adopted as like, as general truths until long after they've been implemented. For instance, we now look at say the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. As this champion of peace and this real symbol of like American gumption and just really like they go low, we go high. This whole thing that like much of America has really, really, really embraced. If you want an example of that, go to Twitter and look for any article, any article that someone posts about um, a black person who is being harmed by racism. And I guarantee you 100% there will be a white person in the comments using Dr. King to convince black people to not get upset about racism. They'll probably misquote him, but more than anything, they're going to use him as something to, to um, get the black people to calm down. But in 1954, he was considered a terrorist, a communist. The FBI was tried to get people to kill him. He was banned from many cities. He was considered an enemy of the state. And so back then, the people who I would say would be like, my kin or who I would feel most um, drawn to the way I was drawn to punk were the young people that were sitting at lunch counters that were doing the freedom rights. That was a vast minority. It's now been co-opted by the mainstream, but it took a long time. By the time punk was co-opted by the mainstream, like, I'm sorry, like what, Woodstock 94? <laughs> punk had already been like accused of being dead since 76. So <laughs> it's like, at, at what point is is the mainstream adopting something that's radical? Yeah, but it, or, it, it should really be like comic books, right? Like it, it, in 1954 or whatever, comic books were like the devil. Right. And now they're the biggest money maker on earth. 
<laughs> yeah, it should be. But, but but then I would go, okay, I think that with comic books, I can clearly outline. I, I, I feel like I can have a clear sense of of the influences that comic book, and I'm a big comic book fan, by the way, but um, <laughs> the influences that comics have on popular culture. Whereas mm-hmm. oftentimes I will hear people give punk credit for things that I don't think it deserves. So I don't, I don't think that punk You're dismissing is, our whole podcast now. <laughs> well, I don't think that punk deserves credit for inventing things like socialism or human decency or, or like stone soups. Like I don't, I, I would argue that the, you know, that the hippies did a lot of the same stuff. They just didn't have riffs. Like, um, <laughs> I remember when okay. I do very very this I, I think we should talk now this is a good time to talk about the boo-boo and killed by desk origin story <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should hear your side of it uh, actually, <laughs> and I we would, can give our, our opinion <laughs> I know my side of it I would love to know y'all side of it We're, I, I have a text message here it's something like hey someone's trolling us on Instagram <laughs> <laughs> I will say that my dear friend Robert, who I was in a band with for a couple of years, I was kind of in his band No Static, um, and I saw that he was in a podcast. I'm a big fan of his. I like the stuff that he does, and I like to hear him talk about the stuff that he does. So I went and checked it out. Now, speaking of James Spooner, there is a long and rich history of punk kind of erasing non-white participation, except for like specific token examples. So that combined with then the Afropunks of the world, and I'm talking about James's documentary, mm-hmm. not, not the festival. Right, right. Uh, I've always left my black ass out. <laughs> <laughs> that is very and honest. So many times in my life, like there was even, I remember um, when I was, I was in Toxic Narcotic about 20 years ago, and I, we played at Bill's Bar on Lancet Street in Boston, and Will Toxic's uh, wife, Amy, who's just such a wonderful person, she was like, hey, this Afropunk thing is really kind of blown up. Again, talking about the documentary. And CBS or someone is doing um, like a, a, a spotlight on minorities in subcultures. And at that time, I was like one of the two Boston Black Punks. Like as far as a core scene, is myself and my brother Yogi. Yogi and Boo Boo were the Black Punks. And she's like, I was like, oh, I don't want to do all that stuff. And she's like, they're going to give you a meal. They're going to buy you dinner. And I was like, oh, fuck. I haven't eaten two days. Like, yes, I'll go on TV for a meal. I stood out in the cold for like fucking three hours and they never picked me up. And I have been mad ever since. So I'm like, oh, shit. Robert's on this podcast. That's great. I wonder who else they've had. And so what, what, what meal should we get you? (laughs) (laughs) We talk about hot dogs a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But so anyway, so you're you're scrolling through our Instagram and you're like, that's a lot of white faces. Yeah. And, and, but it was even more narrow than that. It was white middle-aged male. And my question, while I realized that it was, I realized it was a little antagonistic, but it was honest too. And my question, I posted under Robert's thing, um, your, your guests have been almost exclusively middle-aged white men. Is that intentional? But I am also not at all uncomfortable talking about these things. So it was way less of me starting shit as much as me <laughs> actually asking. 
like honestly asking. And we weren't either. I mean, like we've had conversations about it. We we talked about it before we even started recording any podcast. So it, it's definitely top of mind. And when you brought it up, it, it was something that we had already been thinking about because I do our social media. So I post every day. We have a guest and I try and pull quotes every for the entire week for that you know, highlighting that show. And, you know, there definitely has been that situation. And I know that the answer that I gave you, you kind of tore apart, but you were like, you were friendly about it, but you were like, oh, it's a bullshit answer. I'm looking forward to talking about that part of it. Yeah, that part of it, I'm really looking forward to for us, like, hashing wait, wait, I want to read, I want to read the text messages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dave says the screenshot is like, Jesus Christ, I was waiting for this one. And then I wrote, ask him to recommend someone, please. And also ask him to fuck, ask him to fuck off first. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, then Dave wrote a very nice reply, mm-hmm. and I said, "Nice." And dot dot dot, fuck off. <laughs> and then Dave said, "Hey, his band is really good, and this guy seems cool." <laughs> um, dude, that Master Rest record is fucking great, by the way. I, we'll we'll talk about that later. Thank you. But, uh, very proud, but, very proud of that record. But um, I have to say, um, I told you before, I, I work in PR and marketing, and I definitely my PR like fucking holding statement instinct went in. I think people, one of the things that when we started this, this, uh, this podcast, people think we're more in the scene than we are, um, Mm -hmm. still. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really, I mean, like I have a fucking job. I have a wife. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. Now I don't even live in New York anymore. And for me, when I left punk rock, you know, I don't mean, I don't mean I left punk rock. I'm still, you know, whatever. Listen, we don't need to glamorize it, whatever. It was very white. And it's still, you know, and, and, and I think things have changed to a certain extent. I look on the Instagram and see the kids and they look more diverse, you know, and that seems great. And some of the bands that I listen to, although I, I have to honestly say most of what I listen to is stuff that I listened to when I was a kid. So, and I think I, that holds true for us, for the three of us, you know, for Bill and Charlie as well. I don't think Charlie even listens to music anymore. I didn't move to Louisville. You didn't move to Louisville. I know. I got you. <laughs> Good distinction. You know, we're going to speak to people who are from bands that either we are peers of or we looked up to. And in the punk scene, that is, unless I'm like, I felt like it was pandering to be like, let me pick a person of color and then research what job they have Mm -hmm. so I can book them on a show to be a token. Right. I want to put a pin in that one as well, because I'm looking forward to getting, once we started the exchange, because there were a few... Things that, that you said that I felt like I heard before, and I remember I gave a response to which um, it's like, well, you're, you're definitely making a lot of assumptions, uh, saying that I was making assumptions, and of course I was. But I, I want to talk about that, too, about the, the fear of being disingenuous, of you guys being like, well, well, look, we don't, like, we're a bunch of 40-something guys that cut our teeth in a very specific time and place. We haven't presented anything that is inauthentic to that. And if we did, we worry that it would be disingenuous and it would look like we were just pandering for, for public relations. I don't know. I don't feel guilty. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie, Charlie, come on. We don't expect you're here to not feel guilty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> but, but I think it's like, you know, we're desperate to get guests half the time. You know, it's like, who can we get? Oh, no, we need somebody. Who can we get? But so, but, so what happens so often and what I was responding to. So often what happens is I get told, well, I didn't want to do anything because I was afraid it would seem like pandering. So instead I'm going to do nothing. And that I have, that I just always take umbrage with because none of us want to get it wrong, but I would rather get something, something possibly a little wrong than, than to do nothing, which I, I know is definitely wrong. Right. And so that's the thing that like, 
you know, working in, in marketing and, and in tech, like so often there is the, well, we've been trying to find people to which I always respond. No, you haven't. Because if you had, you'd find them by saying we've been trying to find them and we can't find them. Oftentimes it's somebody trying to say, what they're trying to say is we don't know where they are, but what they end up saying is they don't exist. That's a big problem. It's not true. Like what I've seen is the people I've reached out to, they were like, yeah, I hate my fucking job. And it's like, well, that's going to bum everybody out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and I think, I think that that's part of the problem too, right? Like why, you know, are, why are the 10 people, nine out of the 10 people fill from the Templars? You got to get back to me. I, we want to talk about podiatry, <laughs> but yeah, the 10 people I reached out to, you know, they're like, yeah, I got to find a new job first because I hate this fucking place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm not treated right. And I'm, I, I've gotten stiffed. And, you know, and it's like, well, you know, that's not that's not what we want on the podcast. <laughs> One of them, I was like, hey, you know what? We're almost in the same field. Let me try to help you get a job. <laughs> I guess you can't put that corn back on their feet. <laughs> uh, but no, they, they, Phil a I, I, I'm not going to make fun of Phil anymore. <laughs> the challenge is, I mean, and this is from a booking standpoint. A, I don't want to book the show. I'd much rather have it be like just have someone be like, oh, he, here's who you're talking to. You can do uh, you can do the research. Mm -hmm. It's hard because there's such a stigma in general. I'm not talking about any specific group at all but it's it's punks have it's it's two camps either you're still punk rock and you want to talk about it and everything that, that's bad on that end that you talked about earlier or it's people going i don't want to go on a podcast and talk about punk rock i have a business or i do this and i like don't want you know anyone to find this that would be terrible so you know so there's that challenge there and the people that have really interesting jobs that come from the punk world usually don't want to talk about them and, you know, or, or there's a challenge in that, mm -hmm. that, like, you know, they don't, they don't throw it out there on, um, on their Instagram. Like they're not like posting a picture from their office or posting a picture from their, <laughs> like, their delivery route or whatever they're doing, you know? So. Right. Dave, have you ever thought they just might not want to come on this podcast? That's, I mean, that's, I, I'm <laughs> definitely, there's definitely people that don't want to come on because of me. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, like, well, that's a person of color I've been friends with forever. And he's like, yeah, you're going to ask me about the letter I wrote to Max and Rock and Roll about how I'm afraid of getting AIDS if I go to ABC. In Rio. <laughs> and I, I'm going to lose my business. <laughs> <laughs> but all right. You know, so, like... <laughs> but here's another another way of looking at it, though. It's like so often we naturally we create our pipelines. Like we we have our inner circle. We we have friends who are friends who are like friends of friends of friends, and these are our pipelines. But I think that you can find that it doesn't. You're you're not nearly as far separated from like the amazing 28 year old femme queer body worker who is like who loves what they're doing and who is using all these diy principles to create their own business to create you know maybe they're they're making um like cannabis salves maybe they're maybe they're fucking doing reiki like all i also, I live in the Bay Area. There are all sorts of things you consider jobs out here, but well, well that's why you got to help. You got to help us here. We need you to be. The, we need you to be our booking agent, Boo Boo. I, I do want. I do want to say this though. I do want to say this though. This is one of the reasons why, at my job, I spend anywhere from fifty to seventy percent of my time helping the company's DEI initiative because I go, "Hey, there's a problem," and they go. We're so glad you said something. Why don't you do something about it? And that <laughs> was, was the story was of like, your life. It was like, hey, why don't you recommend somebody? I'm like, I thought that's what record reviews are for. Like, what? Like, no. <laughs> I'm not here to help you all find punks. Like, <laughs>
<laughs> but, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Now, you're, now that we have a report, there's a ton of people I will be more than happy to recommend. To all you. right, that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> but no, you're right. It's not, it's not your job. Friends. It's not your job to you know. It's not your job to help us out on this. And one of the things that that I wrestle with on this show is the barriers that and the the lanes that we've put up ourselves with the podcast. You know, and and we've had a lot of conversations about that internally. Where I'm glad I wasn't in on that conversation. No, you weren't in that conversation because you dis- <laughs> you disagreed with me because I said I want because I said I wanted to open it up to be more less about punk rock as a as a as a narrow lane and more about like underground culture and like mm. oh yeah I definitely was in that you were in that and you said no and you said this is, and the conversation was that this needed to stay punk rock and that's fine I, whatever it is what it is not everything needs to be everything right so one thing I think is worth mentioning though is that those of us over 40 we grew up in a pre-globalized world we grew up pre-internet and things were very at least for me were very clearly defined like by the time I left seventh grade and got into eighth grade and went from thinking that everything that my my classmates li- didn't listen to must have been punk to then learning about all these genres and subgenres, and it was very easy to be like, this is this, this is this, this, and this. And that really decided who I hung out with, who I ran into. Uh, and I was always looking for that coded language, like what color are their shoelaces, what bands are on their, on their patches or whatever. I don't think it's nearly the same for people who are younger for whom (laughs) none of this effervescence what the fuck is that the word (laughs) the word rare means nothing you know what i mean like you're not waiting for some older kid to give you a a mixtape that's like something awesome on one side and some shitty white power florida heavy metal band on the other side (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's all on the internet. I mean, you hear a name and you go look it up and you're so different than... And then it gets to blend together. And then next thing you know, like maybe maybe your punk is like fully synth and 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 it has, you know, like I, I'm just saying that like, I think that even the term punk, and I'm not, I've always said punk is a self-diagnosed disease. I always fucking hated <laughs> people calling other people. Alice Cooper was punk. Like, no, Alice Cooper was his own thing. Super cool. Super Alice Cooper was glam. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would agree with that for sure. But or, or like Mr. T is punk. Like no fucking Jesus Christ. Okay, like punk doesn't encompass everything. You don't like Mr. T? I think Mr. T is great. He's got nothing to do with punk. That's also okay. Great. That's true. <laughs> He's much more on your United Way. F- <laughs> yes, uh, tip much there. more, much more. <laughs> I love looking at it that way. And I think feel like even ABC No Rio back in the day, I mean, I remember walking in and Dead Prez was playing and I was like, this is fucking punk rock. This is, I mean, like, and I know like, you know, like, but like everything that they were saying, if it was a crust band would have been everyone's favorite band, you know, like, like that's. Do you remember um, Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy on Alternative Tentacles? I know the name. So the hip hop duo, fucking incredible. They they did um, one of the many versions of California Uberalis. They did a Pete Wilson Hit, but a uh, rap version, I, I would guess maybe 96, 97. It was on Alternative Tentacles. I'm sure that Jello Biafra signed them himself. And I think it's been tried. And of course, the travesties of like Didi Ramone or whoever and, and Malcolm McLaren doing their hip hop stuff in the early 80s. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. You're <laughs> saying Didi Ramone's hip hop was not good? Uh, I just said it was a travesty. I never said it wasn't good. <laughs> we did almost the whole episode on this that hasn't been released yet. I actually think that that <laughs> album is impossible. That, that album impo- is completely, it exists for what it is. And you just like, I mean, you can have your opinion on it, but it, it's, it doesn't stop that from being. You said it was the greatest thing you ever heard. That was no. That was our guest. Yeah, I did not say that. 
I said I owned it and I had Didi Ramon sign it. I did not say that it was my favorite thing ever, the best thing ever. I have I have Didi Ramon's fanzines tucked inside. Oh yeah, taking dope or whatever. Yeah. Yes. I think it's it's not uncommon for older punks to for certain older punks to try to incorporate the the youth or whatever. And there's something about that that always feels to me at least, or oftentimes feels a little fabricated and like kind of like, Hey, fellow kids. But when younger people are doing it organically, I mean, you know, when I was a kid, it wasn't, it wasn't weird for me that anthrax and public enemy went on tour together. I'm like, that makes total fucking sense. It's two different beats, but it's the same, same topic, same intensity, everything. To me, it it totally, like, it made sense that way. But I was also fucking, like, 10 years old or something. Like, things just make more sense. Just made more sense when I was younger in that way. Isn't it better when the music is geared towards the 10-year-old? In general, yeah. Yeah, always. I'm a big fan of Baby Shark. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. I want to get back to work for a second, okay? Is there an element, right, the, the... the companies you've worked for were supporting like open source technology. Is there, do you feel a connection between open source and everything else that you're about? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's the same type of thing, right? It's like it starting an open source project is very much like starting a band. You know what I mean? Like you, you are the one person that, that you have a vision and you can contribute whatever it is that you're best at or whatever you have bandwidth for. And you're trying to find other people to help you realize that dream and to contribute their input and their ideas as well, like a band. And so in that sense, and, and also the culture too, I would say a lot of, there's a lot of toxicity, a lot of fucking awful toxicity in open source communities and culture. But a lot of it is very DIY, very punk-esque in that it's kind of the idea of, of forming your own society, having your own code of conduct, your own rules. You decide who gets to play and who has to go. Like It's very much like a DIY show where you're doing your own, you know, quote-unquote security. Bad people show up, you get rid of them. And uh, like the, the, the connection is undeniable. And the guy, uh, James Brian Redbeard, who got me into the first tech company that I worked for, that for him, that they've always been hand in hand. He discovered computers and punk right around the same time. And, and I think that's the case for a lot of, of these open source developers. Whether or not they had punk, it doesn't matter because this was their, their fabricated intentional society where they sought people out who had similar values and people were showing up to contribute, right? Like you can't really just be a hanger on. And so it, I think it empowers people to make changes. And I think that we're raised in America to think that everything is out of our control, right? I was told as a kid, don't fucking vote. Your vote is just a waste of time. Don't protest. There's no, you know, no changing. Don't quit smoking because, you know, like you, you, you're going to be end up supporting the cigarette companies one way or another, even if you're not buying cigarettes. Everything was just telling me not to get involved, telling me not to fucking to just be like, you know what? This it is what it is. It sucks, whatever. But and like, like everything is just immutable and just it's all physics built into the universe, and that's absolute bullshit. And I think that that's I think what they, it, I think they should replace that penguin with a with a boo boo now. <laughs> no, no, because <laughs> the thing is, is I am not. I I am in marketing. I do marketing within tech but i what i do i could do in any industry uh, because I, okay. re- I refuse to learn to write code <laughs> <laughs> I, i've been part of this open source community for a few years now there's no toxicity in it at all i mean That's it might amazing. be because it's 
heavily moderated and people get paid to moderate. Mm-hmm. I have an example. We had an in-person event and there was a 75-year-old nonprofit executive, a rockabilly couple, and a priest having an intense discussion about an app to do event management. That sounds like an awful joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a, ro- no, it is a rockabilly couple, it so it's got to be an awful joke at some level. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was just like, I don't understand why there's a rockabilly couple here, but they seem to know their shit. No, that's great. I think that that's awesome. I mean, that's like that really, that's power. Right? Like that's fucking power. That's I mean, yo, the Black Panther Party for self-defense. In nineteen sixty-six they form and they're like, yo, we need to fight the government for the opportunity to have liberation and self-determination. Some of us are gonna are gonna like get guns and some of us are going to write speeches and some of us are going to march. But like, yo, we need to feed our fucking children too. Our children are starving. They can't excel in school in their garbage public schools. They're you know, like we know we know the recipe for success and we don't we're not being given the ingredients so we're going to start our survival programs we're going to start sickle cell anemia testing we're going to feed children we're going to register people to vote this is the same thing that open source software developers are doing they're they're looking for for holes in society in community in wherever where where they can find ways to meet the need that's altruism well, that's at me, this event at this event, the breakfast was not any better. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I read about Black Panthers, and they said breakfast is cookies and milk, and I was like, "What? Where Come did on, you read that? Cookies and milk in the in the most recent Black Panther history." Okay, <laughs> and I was like, well, "Why did they put that detail in? That doesn't seem right." <laughs> because disinformation never stops. <laughs> or maybe that was just you know, that it's it. It's like, hey. It's cookies and milk. It's okay to eat. It was, I don't know. What do you got I against mean, cookies and milk? Nothing. Well, you freaking like, seem to I've be dissing it. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I was never allowed to eat cookies and milk for breakfast. Well, maybe you freaking got some problem. Maybe I missed out. I don't know. You freaking <laughs> drink Diet Pepsi for breakfast. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I, I secede my time. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so, I mean, so I think thinking about what the future holds and, and whether it's looking at podcasts or the office space or, or, or whatever else, what does success look like for you in what you're involved in now and what you're doing like with equity, inclusion and diversity? Gosh, that's a really good question. And it's, it's really funny because whenever I'm trying to help launch programs, I try to always bring it back to that right there. Like, wait a minute, what, what do we, how do we identify and define success? Because it's often a moving target. And if everyone isn't agreeing upon it, then some people are going to think that they've succeeded while other people are feeling very much left out in the lurch um, because their goals haven't been achieved. Um, so, of course, I haven't put any thought into it myself. I think that success would <laughs> look like a more equal distribution of equity, of money, of power, being having their be more of a fair shake. We're trying to dispel a lot of myths. Um, you know, there are men now who say that there are less women in computing than men because men are just more mathematical. That's absolute bullshit. In fact, there's that's, actually uh, Larry Summers. Larry Summers said that. Oh, is that true? That's that's his, what... it's his quote. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's not true. When he was president of Harvard. There's even a, there's a lot of research that that shows that young girls are are their brains are more prone to being able to handle math, whatever. I don't give a shit. I just know 
that in reality, it was much more, there were many more women in computing than men forever. It started being a shift in the 1980s. And it's not that women stopped coming into the workforce, they just started leaving the workforce because they were no longer welcome there. So it's myths like that, that, that we're trying, that a lot of it has been really self-serving to keep people who have advantages to have advantages. So just getting rid of things like that. So success for me, I would say less bullshit, more opportunities for everybody, like fucking everybody. I mean, that's that. I see other things too, like, I don't know, prejudices and I don't know a whole bunch of shit, man. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you're, you're creating these programs, so... <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> right? I'm trying to. <laughs> it's like... You know, I was I was talking to uh, someone at work, and, and they were talking about our boss, and we were, you know, we were talking about new business initiatives and what we needed to... Goals we needed to hit for new business or whatever. And our boss was going crazy with, like, this is how you need to do it. This is, like, what we need to do. And this is, you know, we need a, a new client in this category, in this category, and blah, blah, blah. And in our conversation, he just goes, you know, he's not actually going to give a shit if you follow that path, as long as you bring in the business that we need to bring in. And, you know, if you do that and you're successful, it doesn't matter how you got there. I've seen, my eyes have been opened a lot moving from New York to, cause you live in a bubble when you're in New York city, obviously to Kentucky where, you know, I see these people that, you know, the Trump voters that are just fed on hatred and fed on, on distrust and anger and resentment and being told that they're not good enough and that, you know, someone else is going to come and steal their jobs, whether it's immigrants or people of color or whatever it may be. It's these people that are predominantly white that I'm making generalizations here, but in a lot of instances haven't often even left their like, you know, 50 miles from where they grew up. And there's something to be said about, you know, you talked about allyship earlier. Like, I think there needs to be more of of that from a inclusive level that doesn't disregard oh hey you know this was your moment in the sun you're done you know now it's this different group's time and it's like no i think we need to look at it in a way that it's it's you know how do we all band together and everybody plays a role because that's the one thing that i feel like in a lot and i'm not saying this is what you're talking about at all but you know i've seen this in in some of the some of the voices out there in in this conversation that are saying like you know it's almost like riot girl where it was like you're not allowed to be part of this because you're a guy or you're not you know and i i feel like that's something that is going to disenfranchise a lot of white people who who want to help and want to be part of this and want to see the positive fruits of of that kind of conversation dialogue and action okay so i have responses to, to no please do that. yeah yeah um so there's a few things that i want to say one i want to say that Look, disenfranchised people everywhere deserve representation and really deserve to have a voice. And I think that there has al- there has always been massive populations of white, um, poor, underserved, underrepresented people in America. That is very much and has very much been the backbone of America um, for a long time, but particularly post-1865 when slavery was abolished. And I think that those people are are constantly kept at disadvantage. I mean, Jesus, I remember back in the day being like, oh my God, we need to get these people out of fucking coal mines because it's an inhuman work, inhumane work environment. People, human beings shouldn't be down there for fucking fossil fuels. That is wrong, right? But because nobody did or nobody was allowed to or whatever give them another path, then all they heard was Hillary Clinton say, we got to close these coal mines. Didn't hear her fin- finish the sentence. And I'm not pro Clinton or anything like that, but they could, they naturally couldn't hear the rest of the sentence. It was like, and we got to get you training, got different jobs, education. Well, all they heard 
was that this the one thing that we have going back generations, we're going to lose. And and they react to that. The, there's a lot of people in power who really, really, really want those people to stay angry and scared. And so they're not going to give them opportunities because they need them to be angry and scared. I can't do anything about that. Not Not at this moment. I am not in a position to do anything about that. I don't live there. I mean, is, I that, is that is that a thing at Red Hat? What is that? Is that is that even a population at Red Hat? I, I mean, I, you're, you're, right now you're focusing on Red Hat, and you have some activities outside of there. Right? Is that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why I, I mean, make sure you, we're not we're not gonna we're not we're not gonna you know you have you're really ambitious, but we don't expect you to do all of this. I appreciate that. Look, I try to bring a little light into whatever room I walk into. So if I end, if I find myself in West Virginia for any reason, then yeah, then I'm going to hope that I'll be invited into some rooms to try to help bring some light in, into there as well. Thank God I'm not in those fucking rooms, though. So, <laughs> so I hey, about I, that Krishna temple. Uh, we have a conference there. <laughs> that's okay there you go that's the only thing i know that's in west virginia <laughs> um okay so so there's that part of it but i want to talk about when you were talking about disenfranchising white people that might want to be in on the cause and the fear that another group any group or groups are saying okay you've had your turn now step aside i watched this happen over the weekend when uh zulu from la uh, put up the pre-orders for their new hoodie that on the front says Zulu and on the back it says abolish white hardcore. And there was, anyone who doesn't know, they are the Black Power Violence Band from LA. It's all They're all black members, hyper-political. And there was a lot of pushback. And I kind of got into an argument with somebody who was saying that they felt that people are now, first off, he said, in not so many words, white people created hardcore White people have been excelling in hardcore for 30 years. And now he takes he takes bones with the idea that now black people are saying, okay, white people, you've had hardcore long enough. Now you have to quit hardcore or leave the shows or whatever. And now it's our time to shine. That's not at all what Zulu was talking about at all. Would we get reparations for the torture of going to so many bad shows? Um, well, I mean, I don't, you probably don't get <laughs> fucked wow. with by cops as much as I do. I don't know if that gets to count. But. <laughs> We'll never get that time back, Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, really, like, what it comes down to is it's not about replacement. That's the thing. That's one of the fucking things that's happening right now in the world is that there are white people who are being convinced that replacement theory is a real fucking thing. That that we are going, we, me as as one of the non-white citizens of this world, just want to take what you have so that I can have it and you cannot. That is how white society works. That is not how many other societies in the world work. (laughs) I'm sorry, but it's true. What you're describing is pretty much colonization. You're describing something that you have had intended and taken care of for years. And now us showing up as interlopers, claiming it as ours and taking it from you. That's not at all. That's not even likely to happen. It's, It's not even possible to happen. But the fact that the fact that one band with one hoodie is enough oppression for people to be like, that's it. Now they're trying to take hardcore from us. I'm sorry, but hardcore and punk has always been multi-ethnic. Maybe not where somebody lived or when somebody lived, you know, maybe 
uh, maybe fucking Cincinnati shows in 98 weren't, you know, like a fucking Benetton ad. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, because then you go to places like L.A., L.A. is fucking brown as hell. You go to a show in fucking Southeast L.A., you're just not going to see many white people except for maybe one of the bands playing. So it, it's it's all it's all relative. And to say that we're trying to take that anyone is trying to take anything away from anyone just, just simply isn't true. And so even if there are shows or, or comps or whatever, that's all, all women or all non-male, all black or all, whatever it is, that still doesn't even begin to scratch, scratch the surface that the vast majority of participation and representation, the vast majority is white, is male, is straight is cis and all of these other things it's so to that end so to, to that end do you feel like you know I, i've heard people say that that you know the movement has a pr problem in terms of like the terms that are used whether it's critical race theory or defund the police things like that like do you believe that that is true or do you believe that people are just so butthurt in white society that they're just not going to to accept what's being said in that in what in like the example you were using earlier are white people not willing to open their their eyes and ears and, and actually listen to the problems I'll say this what with the idea of possibly disenfranchising people or rather I'm sorry disenchanting people so people who were like wanted to be a part of the movement but now feel like they haven't been welcomed or respected in in a certain way and now they feel like they're somehow rejected from it or that they're not going to be a part of it and people say you know these are people that potentially you know could could really be helping your cause but because of however they were treated then they're just not going to. Well, to this, I say, fuck those people. Because, <laughs> because if that's all it takes for them to stop caring about the lives of human beings, we were never going to be fucking comrades to begin with. It wasn't going to happen. And in fact, going back, if you go back to looking in the 1950s, if you listen to interviews with Northern moderates during the Freedom Rides as college kids from New York City are hopping buses down to Mississippi to try to 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 um, drive voter registration among black Mississippi citizens, white people didn't like it, but would hold their support like a carrot on a fucking stick to be like, well, if you do what I want you to do, then I might give you my support. Part of that comes from this notion that nothing can be done without the help of white people, that no, no major accomplishment can be had without the benevolent assistance of these selfless people who are giving charity to these to these um, mongrel people that are asking for for equal representation. So that is somebody who is who is maintaining and protecting their power and leveraging inequity to give themselves more power. Fuck that. That is why the last song on the Mass Arrest record is white validation. And the last thing I say on that record is I don't need no white validation. It is not to say that I don't need white people in my life. My mother is white. Um, I have white family, white friends. I mean, it, I, I'm not a separationist by any way. But it's this idea that my coworkers in 2014 had their train delayed for 20 minutes to get to work. And that was enough for them to think that Freddie Gray deserved to die. That was enough for them to say that the movement for Black Lives just was obnoxious. That, to me, is such fucking bullshit that I am not going to pander to it. I'm not going to. That'd be like if I was putting on a punk show and someone's like, yeah, but you really should have an alt-country band play. Why? 
There's all country band <laughs> shows. You can you, like why do, why does why do I need to cater to you in this space when you're not providing or bringing anything to it anyway? So I mean, look at your social media. Look at how often you'll see um, a non black person, for instance, say, well, if you keep talking like that, then no one's going to be on your side. For real? For real. We're getting killed <laughs> in the fucking street. We're being choked out on camera. We're being shot in the back of the head. But you you, you want to make sure we talk to you, right? Get the fuck out of here. Like you're, 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 you're just using it as a tool to manipulate. So it's the same so people anyone, that misquote MLK. Yes. And so for me, when I'm in spaces, when I'm in non-male spaces, for instance, and People who really the number one fucking bane of their existence are people like me, are fucking straight men who dominate, who control, who rape, who abuse, who steal power, all this stuff, right? It's the number one thing that they're fucking having to survive every day is people like me. If I walk in that space and I hear someone say men are trash, do I have any fucking right to be upset about that? Why not instead use that as an opportunity to look at my own conditioning, my own training, the way I've been raised, and wonder, huh, am I trash? <laughs> like, <laughs> do I act trashy? Do I do I exert privilege over people? Fuck yes, I do. I'm a man raised as a man in America. I have to constantly be at, at I uh, constantly try to, whenever possible, be aware of that. Not going, well, mm, they, you know, they didn't welcome me. They didn't invite me in. And I hear Riot Girl get a lot of fucking backlash for that. A lot of backlash for that. But did Riot uh, Girl... Most of that came from me, actually. <laughs> but, but did so. Riot Girl in any way challenge the existence of punk? And, and the men who didn't get to go to Bikini Kill shows, were they ostracized from society? Did they really lose out on anything? <laughs> right, really right, anything right. at all. Compared to the women who, for the very first times, the, the girls and women, depending on their age, who very first time were being encouraged to play music and have radical self-expression. I'm sorry, but like the, the two aren't even comparable to me. They, they just aren't. And I and it was a really tough lesson for me to learn that that there are times when just by my very existence, somebody who isn't an asshole might feel threatened by my presence. That's just a fucking reality. And you know what? As a as a black man, I'm used to it anyway because I see people fucking cross the street or clutch their purse in, in the elevator or whatever. I've already used to the idea that some people are going to be uncomfortable by my mere presence. So maybe it's not that much of a stretch for me to go, yeah, okay, and I, and I can't. You know, I can't go to this Rockwell show or whatever. But ultimately, it never negatively affected me. My life is still the same as it would have been had I been able to go into that show or not. So speaking of uh, people who can fuck off, <laughs> I heard that Dropkick Murphys put a hit on you and we may have something in common. Is that Whoa. true? <laughs> Let's, well... <laughs> Did we hit the first thing that we're going to cut? <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> I would like to hear what you heard. I just heard it from your coworker, so I don't know how exaggerated it was. Oh, had a hit out on me. No, 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 no. There was no. never. Did you? No, have, did, it, they have, did they? Have, did they even look at you the wrong way? <laughs> I mean, I mean yeah, when the Dropkicks very first came out, I would say like '96, they were like hometown heroes. They, they didn't even headline the shows. They were like a bunch of old guys that thought what kids like Mike McCarthy and and fucking you know bands like the Ducky Boys and the Trouble, Pinkerton Thugs, like all that era was just 
starting to blow up and they just wanted to be in on it. They were super cool. Mike McColgan was like the chillest dude. Um, and then Al was singing for the bruisers at the time. And I was with the port city boot boys at the time. And we were pretty much like the running crew for the bruisers. So it was all like good, but things just, I don't know, man, things just got, <laughs> is it, was it just like a band beef? It, it wasn't even, it's not even worth talking about. <laughs> not because, even that. Because my, right. my, 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 I, I, I wrote in Maxim Rock and Roll that they broke up because the singer left to become a fireman. And I, 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 from what I understand, they put out a record with a disclaimer card in it saying uh, it wasn't true. Mike McColgan <laughs> did leave the Drockley Murphys to become a firefighter. And he <laughs> yeah, went, but I said uh, that they broke up. Good riddance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They, <laughs> They didn't break up, actually. They didn't break up. <laughs> <laughs> they they started auditioning. Um, they audi- That's it what's was good Al- about being the National Enquirer. Of- so what you're saying is we should have Mike yeah, McCulligan on the show to talk about being a fireman. <laughs> I mean, yes, I definitely. Ta- he's in the Street Dogs, I think. I haven't talked to Mike McCulligan in easily 20 years, but he was a fucking <laughs> We, we can get then. to him, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he still lives in the same house in Dorchester that he lived, you know, 30 years ago. Like, That's the most Boston sense drop kicks, Yo, or, or, or what about I quit my Boston Irish working class band to become a firefighter? That's the most fucking. Bu- it's even better to become a priest. Like that's the most Boston sentence I ever heard. Like that, this whole punk thing is cool, but you know I'm getting old. I'm 22 now. I should become a firefighter. <laughs> but considering everyone was pretending to be working class at that time, I mean we all had jobs, but not everyone was working class. Like to be like, wow, yeah, this dot rat is like joining the fire crew. Like, all right, like he's walking the walk. But no, there's there's been no real beef. There was one incident that happened at Wetlands. There was a. Yeah, it's not worth going into. It's fine. <laughs> okay, never mind. Because <laughs> my, my my coworker doesn't have any background in punk, so for him, like, yeah, no, that's that's why I'm just gonna skip over this. This is fine. It's it's it, it, he's he's very enamored of you though. Oh, that's great. And, I like and, him very and, much. And, and and I don't know how you know, subversive he is, but he recognized me from the Chris Gethard show. (laughs) So I'm like, perfect. That's not necessarily punk, but he's, he's definitely on some sort of fringe somewhere. (laughs) The man has pretty much has a PhD on internet culture. (laughs) Um, Honestly, he's, he's pretty great. His name is Matt Moraine. Shout out to Matt Moraine. Very nice guy. The other other question I have was, so you, you do, you do, you know, event based work and you know, punk is event-based work did like i had, I had a, a co-worker uh nikki she was a, she was in the detroit party marching band but i got i helped her get a job with me and she actually put her punk booking agent stuff on her resume and got the job i just wonder if you nice. ever put a punk thing on your resume um i used to i honestly like my there are so many outtakes that don't go on my resume anymore because it's just not really relevant and some things like punk or bike messenger it just invites way more questions than answers like <laughs> where, where like where you can go oh i can i can easily draw like a logical line of correlation between punk shows and events i mean you know like but an events person they like i'm sorry like <laughs> what is this probably the closest thing they've seen to punk is like i don't know woodstock 99 um or or something like that like <laughs> and in fact i would say in general it's one of those things like as as a, an adult adult words like skinhead or punk like they i don't use them as frequently because i just don't want the questions i don't want anyone to get the wrong idea like when i say punk most of my punk friends these days it's a lot of like social workers or public school <laughs> teachers or you know whatever i'm not hanging out with gg punks <laughs> 
I'm not hanging still, out with mentors, Mark. I still do have to say, though, I mean, I'm looking at your photo right now in Zoom, and you've got a bad brains tattoo. So there's going to be, like, on your hand. So there's going to be people that are going to be like, okay, they're going to know if they know. And when it happens, it's awesome. I was uh, getting interviewed for a segment at work. And uh, one of the producers turned out to be an old DC punk. He's like, yo, are those bad brains hand tattoos? Like, <laughs> that's cool. You know what I mean? But like, I wouldn't have brought it up otherwise. <laughs> All right. I'm a technology lead at a $28 million nonprofit. Sell me something. No. <laughs> From Red Hat. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not a salesperson. Uh, you're not getting paid to be on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, but also, also... Red Hat, I mean, we, we don't have any IP. Like, it's it's free. <laughs> Go ahead and get it. Like, Red Hat and like services. Linux is free. We can manage it for you by we. I mean, people who know how computers work better than I do. Um, yeah, that's not what I do. We did actually, speaking cool. of that, though, selling people things, we did actually have our first guest coming up that would only do the podcast during work hours because they refused to, to not consider this part of their job. That's like a, See, I don't know if you've listened to our that. podcast. <laughs> That's, see, that's the kind of shit I'm talking about where I'm like, well, if I'm going to be talking about my job, they better be paying me. So. <laughs> we already said we'd buy well, you I food. I can feel that. <laughs> I, know, yeah, right, right, right. I already got you dinner here. Sick. All right. <laughs> got to make up for that, 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 those people that left you in the bus station. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, that was so fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, too. Um, uh, when, when James put out Afropunk, um, being a black punk in the nineties was just a really isolating experience. It was just fucking weird. Like I, like my brother and I, we were both boot boys for a little while. We lived up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which was kind of like the Boston skinhead retreat for a little while. It's about an hour drive, hour and a half drive out of Boston. And it, it was like idyllic little town. And so my brother and I were, well, I was 14. Yogi was 16. We'd like sit in the, like the town square, smoking butts, waiting to see what's going to go on for the day. And this is New Hampshire. I mean, we would like drink in exhumed crypts. Um, and the fucking kids who lived in, <laughs> in Nashua, which is like a good 25, 30 minute drive away, told me years later, they'd be sitting there like, oh, what do you want to do? I don't know. Hey, you want to go to Portsmouth and look at the black skinheads? <laughs> they would just drive a half hour to drive down the wow. street. Wow, attraction. Yes. You're like roadside yes. America almost. <laughs> For real. You're and almost that's like it, a, a, a chapter in there. <laughs> that's what it was like back then, man. We really was. And so, you know, being left out of, of any representation just felt shitty. And so James had put out Afropunk and I at the time uh, had a weekly DJ night in Jamaica Plain doing all like punk, hardcore and metal stuff. And uh, so he reached out um, through Camel Cigarettes. And uh, asked if, if we would do a showing of his film. So I was like, oh, word. Okay, yeah, that sounds cool. It makes sense. I'm the black punk. This is the, you know, the, the punk DJ night. And so he sent it out. And uh, I set up the night. And he didn't, one, he didn't put me in the fucking movie. That's a problem. <laughs> but two, <laughs> two, he sent it to be shown thinking, I think, thinking that I would charge admission at the door. And so he tried to hit, I, I don't remember, it was like two. 50 or 500 dollars he wanted to get paid but he also didn't come to it like host it or mm. anything and i just remember back then being like you know what fuck all this what we do is secret like you know we we shouldn't be fucking like talking about this in public or whatever and then i i watched the documentary and i was like damn like no this is this is actually really important because at that moment i was like yo chicago got black punks i want to go to <laughs> chicago <laughs> like, 
So, I mean, for, for all of the ire that I was, you know, all the shit I was talking about that. And I actually, I said something to, to James. We don't know each other very well, but um, I, I think like he said something on my Instagram or we were like both putting in something else. And I like totally called him out. I was like, well, you didn't put my ass in it. And he's like, man, if I had known you then, I promise if I do another one. So maybe, <laughs> maybe you'll see my smiling mug on one of these uh, people of color in punk. Oh, I introduced him to Cracker Barrel Breakfast. It, I am still uh, waiting to be introduced it, to Cracker Barrel in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> in Columbus, Ohio. There's a Cracker Barrel in Columbus? I bet it doesn't get a lot of traffic. Or I bet it gets a lot oh, of traffic. Oh, it does. It does. Try and go there. It, after, was, a, it was a Sunday, Sunday, it was after a church. Sunday afternoon. Yeah, Sunday after oh, church. It was, crazy. it was a long wait. We were hungry. <laughs> I, I would need a gilded invitation to feel welcome there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> after church, Cracker Barrel in Ohio, like... I would need. I think, like, I think, that, I think that's. I think that's the meal we're gonna buy you. Actually. Okay. <laughs> well, you'll tell Columbus, me all about it. They're all the so same. So why don't you guys just come visit me in Louisville, and we'll just go to the. <laughs> uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Everybody, just come visit. <laughs> all right. Sure. <laughs> I'm out of questions. <laughs> well, I want to talk. I want to talk a little bit about music. What, what What do you What do you? I know. Um. You know. COVID. Oh yeah. And, and your your coworker thought that whatever bands you were originally in had really funny names, but I have a feeling they're all bands I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like punk band names. Like I was in. I've been in too many to count, but the ones that actually released stuff. I was in Thirteen Tons of Napalm back in the '90s. I was in Toxic Narcotic for a couple of years. Um, and then a whole bunch of shit that nobody would have heard of. And then when I moved out to the Bay about 15 years ago, I hit the ground running. I moved out here uh, to become, I wanted to be a full-time DJ um, and then and then just play in bands. It had gotten so expensive to get um, practice, like rehearsal studios in Boston. So out here, I like started five bands almost right away. I had Hunting Party, I had Trenches, The Light, uh, Everything Must Go, some other shit I'm just not even thinking of. But right now I have Mass Arrest. It's the only band that I'm in right now. Originally I said it was going to be my final punk band, but I can't quit this shit. But um, <laughs> yeah, so... Does that mean the, that means you're going to do some other kind of music next? I, I was thinking about it. Um, you know, I've been performing music since I was four years old. Um, I love I love music. I really love being on stage. I think that was I think that was one of the reasons why punk spoke to me so so much was just like, are you saying that I could go and get a guitar and next week I could be on stage at a show? Like before that, concerts were just such a inaccessible thing, and, and to just see all these high school kids just doing it on their own or whatever. Um, and so performing on stage, talking, engaging, talking at the merch table afterwards, these are like my favorite parts of it. And so when um, Will and Sven, um, who they've been in a, just a million bands over the years, um, they approached me. So they said they were starting a new band. They were in a band, Reverse, that was like splitting up. And they reached out to me. And by the time they reached out to me, I hadn't done anything musically in about a year. Um, or I had done a solo project. I put out my a solo record, um, but I hadn't done anything with anyone else. And they hit me up. And at this point, I was just so politically rabid that I didn't really want to do anything that wasn't actively a part of movement work. And so when they called me up, they're like, hey, we're, we've got these riffs and we think that it could easily be like 90s Scottish alternative pop music or killer hardcore. And we think it's the singer <laughs> that's going to make the difference. And I was wow. like, well, I, I think like I... this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they like, um, I was like, well, you know, they knew because of 
I mean, like Trenches was a very kind of youth crew revival, straight up hardcore band that I sang for. And I was just like, well, I mean, it's going to have to be a Black Liberation band. That's the only way that I will do to punk. And I also want to tell, I want to tell punk how isolated punk made me feel for so many decades. Um, and how disjointed I felt from other punks of color because of the, the, the way the, the ethnic, the, the racial dynamics were just kind of set up. It would always be weird if you're the black guy in a room. And then like another scene, some, some people from another scene show up and they have their black guy and they start like the stuff, the whole energy. It's fucking weird. All this shit that like probably y'all have never had to think about that just really bothered the shit out of me. So I was like, fine, this, I, I will do it if it can be this. I never had any idea though, that it would result in the band that it is. I mean, musically, it's the most interesting band I've ever been in. And it is, I, it's, the most divisive band I think I've ever been in, um, for sure. But I just, I had spent my whole like punk career, like writing songs to try to include everybody. But in order to include everybody, I really had to disinclude myself. And because there were things in Boston that we were all experiencing together. I mean, I was the graduating punk class of, I lived with the global threat, the unseen, like that, that really, those, those were my like homies. And that was my generation. There were things that I, that we all experienced as a group. And then additionally, there were these other things that I experienced that none of them did. And talking about it began and ended with a black joke. That's it. Like, Oh, fuck man like the cops just fucking strip searched me right in the middle of fucking right now in the middle of all all sin gets responded to with oh yeah it's because you're black and that's the whole conversation meanwhile these guys are writing songs about police brutality having never ever experienced or witnessed police brutality right so it just felt the opposite of inclusive and i just had to bury so much of myself and my own experiences in order to be a part of this thing punk but then i can listen to all these other people getting to have these completely like like henry era black flag like the most introspective i mean a life of agony and blood for blood or like crying in the mirror in their fucking bathroom on record and that's cool and i can't talk about getting beat up by the fucking cops because it's a race thing and no one wants to talk about the race thing and if you know if women want to start talking about what it's like to be a woman well god we don't want to hear about that either like jesus okay like this isn't actually a space for radical expression this is just a space for these same kids to talk about the same shit that they're not actually experiencing over and over and over again until they end up growing up growing up and taking over their dad's company or whatever so so it's kind of like the tech wanted... industry <laughs> so, so wait so you're, so you're gonna try to figure out how to sing like a scottish singer well so <laughs> no <laughs> So what I what my thoughts were, I want to make a record that will be my my personal greatest contribution to punk compared to all of my other contributions. This will be the greatest thing I've contributed that hopefully will inspire somebody after me. And it just hit at the right time, the same time that bands like Soul Glow and Zulu are just doing this incredible shit. Younger, you know, younger people and and not just them. They're just they're just so many fucking bands right now that are doing so much cool shit and are finding really great ways to represent themselves and and to like just constantly fuck with the boundaries and definitions of family and community in ways that I said that this record was going to be my dear John Leonard to punk, but instead I just feel like like almost like it was my coming out or something like that. Where I feel like now it's okay. You have people like you just have 
people that have been doing this long enough that have helped me learn how to express ideas in a new way and to connect with people in a new way. So now when, I mean, where the fuck has Master S played? Well, half the band lives in Southern California, so it's actually easier for us to pay ourselves to fly to one-off shows than to tour because, you know, uh, Anton, our drummer, has um, has a kid. Our bass player, Will, just had, he and his wife just had a baby like two weeks ago um, or maybe now it's more like six weeks ago. But anyway, so we just don't have a lot of time. We all have jobs and all this stuff. And so where has my Black Liberation hardcore band played? Oklahoma City, Olympia, Washington, um, fucking, you know, uh, Toronto. Like, we're, 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 it's mostly we're playing this message to white audiences. And so, where the value really comes in is mass arrest is happening while so much of this is being talked about in the world. And, and a lot of people have a lot of thoughts and a lot of questions. And so now, like, it's, it reminds me a lot of what I'm doing at work because we play. And then afterwards, I post up like any shitbag singer. I don't actually take gear off the stage. I go and sit <laughs> at the merch table. And while I'm at the merch table, mostly, <laughs> mostly young white people. And sometimes when I'm really lucky, young black people will come up and start talking to me. And we have some of the greatest conversations I've ever had in punk. And we're, where instead of saying, let's forget about our differences and only talk about what we have in common, it's let's fucking talk about our differences and really start to know each other in ways we never had before. And that's a conversation that anybody can have because I bet money that fucking 10 white 17-year-old boys in a room together have a lot less in common than they're being forced to think they are and could probably have much more conver- much more interesting conversations if they were talking about the differences between them too. So it has turned out to be just kind of a happy accident and, that's so fucking and the awesome, record man. i'm just really fucking proud of that's that's and that's i mean that's great and i hope you know I, I feel like we got a little bit of that from you today too in terms of like you know um talking about you know everything that 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 you're doing but also just you know things that we had questions about and everything and i and i really i really do appreciate it and it is really inspiring to kind of hear from you and and, and you know your patience and kind of explaining that because we're not you know uh, you know we're not as as on top of things as we can be and it's why you know you called us out in the first place but it's definitely one of those things that i'm really happy that it happened the way that it did and and uh and i'm really i'm really happy that we got a chance to have this conversation i really am too i love the podcast i listen to several episodes i'm really stoked to be a guest on the podcast um but i'll also like i think i think i think we all handled it right right like i questioned you all about it. i did it publicly i do that intentionally because i want to normalize behavior of mm-hmm. being able to question people not not to troll in front of an audience but see but to say hey Look, people can talk about this stuff publicly without like freaking out at them. In fact, there was that one guy in the comments that he he had that natural defensiveness, right? He felt that you all as his friends was being attacked by an outside force, which is me, right? And he thought that I was accusing you all of some pretty nasty shit of intentionally excluding people of color from your podcast, which you weren't doing. And, and you didn't say that at all. And, and, and right. we certainly didn't take it that way. It wasn't one of those things where like, you weren't like, Hey, racists, like why are, you know, like, right. what your questions were challenging in the true sense of that word, but they weren't confrontational in that sense. Or maybe they were a little confrontational, but they, a little bit, a little bit. Hey, the whole thing, you know what? Maybe this is just New Yorker. I think Charlie can probably speak to this, but I like my friends to like, prove themselves let's put a little challenge let's give you a little nudge here 
to check out that you're not a piece of shit, you know, and that's, and that's, I'm yes. totally 100% for that, you know, and sometimes it hasn't worked out for me, but, you know, that's what it's all about. It's like, hey, you know, like, I'm going to say something dicky just to see. To hear what you do with it. See what you do with <laughs> yeah, it. Exactly. I feel like I'm so good. I can turn anything around and I definitely can't. <laughs> <laughs> but even like your buddy in the comments who I have absolutely no ill will towards whatsoever. I have just seen it played out so many times. I've just seen the way that that goes. And, and I wasn't surprised. And, and he was sticking up for his homies. Good. Stick up for your fucking homies. Like everyone should do that. Who was that, Dave? <laughs> John Warren. So he's also the kind of guy. I, and listen, oh, I love John. Like Dave. I, I've Dave grew known up John guy. forever. <laughs> he's definitely, yeah. he's definitely the guy that like, say you're in a situation at a show or whatever and he's the one that's like yeah well fuck you guy you know it's like he's the one that always says the thing that you're like oh now yeah, i gotta yeah. fight you know like, it's like, like okay, <laughs> hey john didn't you work at mtv yeah. for years come on <laughs> but i i think that we all i think that we all handled it very well and that's like i'm always fighting with the director of my work because he is someone who wants to be corrected but wants it done privately and secretly and nah. i i don't <laughs> want to do that because i want like that was a thing in boston you know like w nothing was off the table every we would just fucking razz each other all day and i i think that was a little harmful but you scale it back a little bit just like you had said like being able to just kind of check your friends i get checked all the time and i need it Everyone does. I mean, yeah, in this, uh, in this day and age, I mean, there's so many people that... No, no, not everyone does, Dave. <laughs> everyone in this room does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Charlie doesn't have to because he just works for himself. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> he doesn't have to put up with anything. <laughs> just us. That's it, kids. The gig is up. The cops are here and your mom is calling jails, hospitals, and all your friends' houses wondering where you've been. Tune in next week for another fascinating, mesmerizing, and absolutely unmissable episode. And be sure to get on the list and follow the boys on social media at Killed by Desk. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help us out with some gas money and to get us to the next show? We have merch and more at KilledByDesk.com.